We are in the book of Judges uh, again this morning. Judges chapter 9. You can turn there in your Bibles or find it printed uh, in your bulletin as well. And don't get nervous, Clary. We're not reading all of it. That's good. <laughs> not, that is a lot. <laughs> um, two, quotes, two quotes to start us off with. Uh, one from the cultural anthropologist Ernest Becker, who none of you have ever heard of. And the other is from Rocky Balboa, who you should have heard of, um, Sylvester Stallone. All right, so we're going to start, we're going to start with Ernest Becker. Uh, here's what he said. Human beings want to be rid of our feeling of nothingness. To know our existence has not been in vain. We want redemption, nothing less. All right, now here's Rocky. All right, he's being asked by his girlfriend, why is it so important for him to go the distance? All right, why is it so important for you to go the distance? And this is what Rocky says. Then I'll know I'm not a bum. Then I'll know I'm not a bum if I go the distance. Uh, for Rocky, boxing is the way he gets rid of that feeling of nothingness that, that Ernest Becker was talking about. Boxing is where he finds power. It's where he finds joy. Uh, it's where he finds significance. It's the place where he can say to himself, I really do matter. And so it's the place where Rocky builds his identity, is on his boxing career. When we read the Bible, we often think about sin in terms of breaking the rules. And it is that. It is breaking the rules. But sin is also what Rocky's doing. It's building your identity on anything other than your relationship with God and finding your ultimate joy and significance in that and not in God. What we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at a man who tried to build his identity on something other than God. And we're going to look at what happened as a result of that. And as we do that, uh, I want us to also think about some of the things we try to build our identities on other than God and the consequences of that in our own lives. So, um, <clears throat> Judges chapter 9, and we're going to start in verse 1, and I'm going to skip around a little bit, so I'll, I'll tell you where I'm going here. Uh, this is God's word. Now, <clears throat> excuse me, now Abimelech, the son of Jerubbabel, went to Shechem. Now, Jerubbabel is another name for Gideon, so this is Gideon's son. I'll just get that out of the way. Now, Abimelech, the son of Jerubbabel, went to Shechem to his mother's relatives and said to them and to the whole clan of his mother's family, say in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, which is better for you that all 70 of the sons of Jerubbabel rule over you or that one rule over you. Remember also that I am your bone and your flesh. And his mother's relatives spoke all these words on his behalf in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem. And their hearts inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, He is our brother. And they gave him seventy pieces of silver out of the house of Bel Bereth, with which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless fellows who followed him. And he went to his father's house at Ophrah and killed his brothers, the sons of Jerubbabel, seventy men on one stone. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jerubbabel, was left, for he hid himself. And all the leaders of Shechem came together, and all Beth Milo, and they went and made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar at Shechem. Now, what happens next is the youngest son, Jotham, who escapes, 
he comes back and he basically gives this speech where he curses both Abimelech and the people of Shechem. Says, this is not going to end well for any of you because of what you have done. Uh, and then Abimelech rules over Israel for, for three years, and then things begin to get dicey between Abimelech and the people of Shechem. And we're going to pick up in verse 26, uh, which is one, two, three, fourth paragraph down on that next page. And Gael the son of Ebed moved into Shechem with his relatives, and the leaders of Shechem put confidence in him. And they went out into the field and gathered the grapes from their vineyards and trod them and held a festival. And they went into the house of their God and ate and drank and reviled Abimelech. And so what happens here is this guy named Gael shows up and basically he starts talking trash about Abimelech. Okay? He's like, ah, we don't need this guy. You guys should follow me. Uh, verse 30, skip down to the next paragraph. When Zebul, the ruler of the city, heard the words of Gael, the son of Ebed, his anger was kindled. And he sent messengers to Abimelech secretly, saying, Behold, Gael the son of Ebed and his relatives have come to Shechem, and they are stirring up the city against you. All right, now skip, skip over to the next page. So, that, so the ruler of the city gets word to Abimelech about what's going on. So verse 34, Abimelech shows up. So Abimelech and all the men who were with him rose up by night and set an ambush against Shechem in four companies. And Gael the son of Ebed went out and stood in the entrance of the gate of the city. And Abimelech and the people who were with him rose from the ambush. And when Gael saw the people, he said to Zebul, look, people are coming down from the mountaintops. And Zebul said to him, you mistake the shadow of the mountains for men. Gael spoke again and said, look, people are coming down from the center of the land, and one company is coming from the direction of the diviner's oak. Then Zebul said to him, where is your mouth now, you who said, who is Abimelech, that we should serve him? Are not these the people whom you despise? Go out now and fight with them. And Gael went out to the head of the leaders of Shechem and fought with Abimelech. And Abimelech chased him, and he fled before him, and many fell wounded up to the entrance of the gate." And Abimelech lived at Aruma, and Zebul drove out Gael and his relatives so that they could not dwell in Shechem. On the following day, the people went out into the field, and Abimelech was told. He took his people and divided them into three companies and set an ambush in the fields. And he looked and saw the people coming out of the city. So he rose against them and killed them. So he waits for more of the people to Shechem to come out, and he, he, he kills them too on the next day. Abimelech and the company that was with him rushed forward and stood at the entrance of the gate of the city, while the two companies rushed upon all who were in the field and killed them. And Abimelech fought against the city all that day. He captured the city and killed the people who were in it, and he razed the city and sowed it with salt. When all the leaders of the tower of Shechem heard of it, they entered the stronghold of the house of El Barith. And, and basically this next paragraph, these guys kind of retreat into this big tower and Abimelech gets his crew to pile up wood around it and they set it on fire and they kill everybody in the tower, right? And the last verse in that paragraph says that about a thousand men and women died in this tower that Abimelech burns to the ground. Now, verse 50, last paragraph. Then Abimelech went to Thebes and encamped against Thebes and captured it. But there was a strong tower within the city, and all the men and women and all the leaders of the city fled to it and shut themselves in, and they went up to the roof of the tower. All right, so we got the, the same kind of thing happening again. 
And Abimelech came to the tower and fought against it and drew near to the door of the tower to burn it with fire. And a certain woman threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. Then he called quickly to the young man, his armor bearer, and said to him, draw your sword and kill me, lest they say of me, a woman killed him. And his young man thrust him through and he died. And when the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, everyone departed to his home. He's like, ah, well, let's go home now. Um, Thus ends the reading of God's word. Let me, uh, let me, let me pray for us. Uh, Father in heaven, this is, a, uh, this is an interesting passage to say the least, uh, but it's also your word to us, and I, I pray that you would help us to gain from it and, and learn from it today. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. All right, uh, what are we going to do with this? Three, three big points. Number one, life without God. Number two, life with a God, and then consequences, all right? Life without God, life with a God, and then consequences of that. First of all, life without God. Uh, a little bit of backstory. Each of the previous stories in the book of Judges has kind of gone this way. It's had a certain pattern. The people of Israel rebel. God sends their enemies uh, to oppress them. The people of Israel cry out. God raises up a judge, and remember, a judge is kind of this military deliverer. God raises up a judge to rescue them, and then there's this time of peace that follows that. But the last story and this story are, are a little bit different. Uh, if you remember, the last judge that we dealt with was Gideon, and Gideon delivered God's people from the hand of the Midianites. But in the process, as he's kind of wrapping things up, he winds up turning against some of his fellow Israelites and killing them as well. Uh, and then even though he said he didn't want to be king, he lives like a king. He even names his son, my father is king. Uh, he built some sort of idol in his hometown, and it became, the text tells us, uh, a snare to, to Gideon and to his family as well. But the nation didn't completely abandon God. And so you still have this 40-year period of peace following Gideon's uh, victory over the Midianites. But when Gideon died, everything goes downhill again. Uh, chapter 8 tells us that the people completely gave themselves back over to the worship of Baal again and that they did not remember the Lord their God. They forgot about God. Now, usually in the book of Judges, this is where a new judge steps up, right? All right, they're, they're oppressed. You know, they've done the wrong thing. God oppresses them. A new judge comes up. This time, the story gets a little different. Instead of moving on to another judge, we are presented with this man named Abimelech. Now, Abimelech is Gideon's, one of Gideon's sons one of his sons, but he was his son by, it wasn't one of his wives, but by his concubine. Uh, a concubine was basically a secondary wife who was a slave, who Gideon just kind of kept around in another city. Uh, Abimelech was his concubine's son. He wasn't one of the 70 sons from uh, Gideon's actual wives. And so Gideon dies and at this point, we don't really know why, but at this point, uh, maybe Abimelech is afraid he's going to get lost in the shuffle. 
maybe he feels insecure because he's not one of the, the natural sons. He's kind of an illegitimate child over here on the side. Maybe he resents his brothers. Uh, maybe he resents his fathers. Maybe he's mad. He's afraid. Maybe he just sees an opportunity and decides to take advantage of it. Maybe pride and ambition just get the better of him. But for whatever reason, he decides he wants to be king. He doesn't pray. He doesn't consult God about this. He just seizes the day. And honestly, you wouldn't really expect him to do anything differently because, as we've seen, the whole nation has essentially abandoned God at this point. And they're trying to live God, live life without God. And so Gideon, I mean, excuse me, Abimelech just does what seems like, hey, let's, let's go for that. He sees what he wants out of life. I want to be king. And so I'm going to go for that and see what happens. Um, God does not enter into his thinking at all. In fact, in the whole of chapter 9, the personal name of God, Yahweh, or the Lord, as our translation is translated, is not mentioned at all. Uh, Abimelech is, is trying to live life completely without reference to God. And everything that happens in the rest of just this chapter flows out of that fact, that Abimelech is trying to live life without reference to God. Now, you probably have never been on a murderous rampage. Um, I hope not. If you have, there's a good church right down the road. Um, but but you, you may not be able to relate to, to that. But I, but I think you can relate to this. We've all tried at one time or the other to, to live life without reference to God. We tried to live life without reference to God. When I was a kid, I remember in elementary school, I don't ever remember having like, art class, but I remember those times when they would just stick us with a piece of construction paper and say, draw. Um, maybe they didn't have the lesson prepared that day. I don't know. But, but, but I remember drawing, and I'd always, for whatever reason, I'd always draw a sun in my pictures. I just like the light, I guess. Um, but, but I'd put it in the upper corner where you just kind of drew half a sun, and then you've done this too, and draw all the rays coming out. And that was like in every picture I drew. All right, so think about it this way. What if that sun represents God and that piece of construction paper represents our lives. This is what we all tend to do. We ask for the scissors, the little bitty scissors, and we, we cut the sun out of the picture. And we just remove it, set it over the table, and we say, this is my life, and I'm going to live it without reference to the sun, without reference to God. Uh, all of us do this. Uh, some people are, are more antagonistic about it than others. Uh, some people are very... Um, vocal about not believing in God, not wanting God to be a part of their lives. Uh, other people are, are not as antagonistic. They're more agnostic about the whole thing. They just don't really see a need for God and don't want to be bothered with thinking about God. He, he, he's just not relevant to their everyday lives. It's not that they're mad about it. They just don't see the point of God. How can it, how can it really help my life? And if, if that's you, I want to encourage you to think about something that, that Tim Keller says in his book, Reason for God. Uh, he says, hidden beneath this feeling is the very modern American belief that the existence of God is a matter of indifference unless it intersects with my emotional needs. The speaker is betting his or her life that no God exists who would hold you accountable for your beliefs or behavior 
if you didn't feel the need for him. This may be true or it may not be true, but it's quite the leap of faith. Abimelech felt no need for God, and so he lived life without God. But yet, as we'll see, Abimelech, excuse me, God still holds Abimelech accountable for his behavior. We may feel no need for God. He may seem irrelevant to us, and yet God still holds us accountable for our behavior as well, whether we feel the need for him or not. Well, some people are antagonistic toward the idea of God. Some people are more uh, agnostic about it. But then I think there's another group of people that a lot of times tries to uh, live life without God, and that's those of us, many of us in this room. Uh, we come to worship. Maybe we even come uh, to a community group. We, we say we're getting plugged in. But then God has no real relevance to the rest of our week. And we may not do it consciously, but it's like we're, we're, we're taking those scissors and we're cutting the sun out of the picture. And we're like, God, this is what I think about. I put God in the picture on Sunday and then the rest of the week, he doesn't really have anything to do with my life. Now, how can I tell if I'm doing that? Well, the obvious way is like, you know, you're just running off going crazy, disobeying God. That one's kind of easy. But I think it's usually more subtle than that, the way we disregard God. Uh, it, it may be that we simply adapt the priorities of the world around us instead of adapting biblical priorities. It may be that instead of trusting God, we find ourselves gripped with fear and anxiety. It may be that instead of rejoicing in the good news of the gospel, uh, we find ourselves wallowing in our own pity parties. It may be that instead of praying, we simply fret and worry. Are we just trying to take care of things ourselves without asking for God's intervention in our lives? When we don't pray, and I think I'm, I'm getting this from Paul Miller, but when we don't pray, we're quietly confident that we can do life on our own without God. We're quietly confident that we can do life on our own. Now, the excuse we'll, we'll, we'll give to ourselves is, it's hard to pray, I'm too busy to pray, I've got all these other things that I've got to get done, and, and that's fine, but I think we need to see that what we're really saying when we don't pray is, I got this, I can handle this, I'm competent and able to take care of this. And I think what that means is that we just haven't gotten desperate enough to really need God, and we're confident in our own ability to sort of uh, master the situation. Uh, here's where this shows up for me sometimes. Uh, if, if I've got a really hard text to preach, like uh, the one we're looking at this morning, um, I'll, I'll make jokes about it like I did this week to kind of deflect it, um, or I'll start to worry about it. And I'll think, man, what if last week was the last week I ever gave a good illustration in my life, and I've like used them all up, and there's no more. There's just no more. Um, and, and so I start to worry about it. And what I'm, what I'm slowly learning is, not very rapidly, but slowly, is that instead of deflecting and instead of worrying, maybe I need to pray. Uh, maybe I need to give up on me and my ability to do life without God. And maybe you need to as well. Maybe you need to give up on you and your ability to do life without God. 
Uh, Abimelech, like many of us, tried to do life without God. But just because he tried to do life without the God doesn't mean that he could do life without a God. Let me say that again. Just because he thought he could do life without the God doesn't mean that he could do life without a God. And what I mean by that? Abimelech, Abimelech, like most of the Israelites, has more than likely at this point gone over to the worship of Baal, this false non-existent God. But I think there's another God in this story, and it's a little more subtle God, and I think it's one that you and I can probably relate to a little better, and it's the God of power and control. The God of power and control. Abimelech wanted to get rid of that sense of nothingness. I'm just the son of a concubine. He wanted to know that his existence had not been in vain. He wanted to know that he wasn't a bum. And the way he did this was by grasping for power and control. The way he did this was like, hey, I'm going to be king, and then I'll know that I'm not a bum. And his desire to be king... His desire for power and control controlled him. His desire for power and control controlled him. So that, first of all, he goes off and kills his 70 brothers. By the end of the story, he's destroying a city. And then he's setting a tower on fire and killing a thousand people in it. He worshipped and served power and control and what that could give him. And his desire for power and control controlled him. In the television series, Breaking Bad, I've been nine weeks without referencing it. You knew I couldn't make it through the book of Judges without mentioning it. It's just just too perfect. Uh, But it it becomes obvious as, as you're watching this series that Walter White, the chemistry teacher turned meth lord, that he's controlled by a couple of things. He's driven by his insecurity and his pride at the same time. He's driven by both his insecurity and his pride. He's driven by this need to prove that, hey, I'm not just this lowly chemistry teacher. I'm actually a brilliant man, and nobody's ever given me any credit for it. it. Nobody realizes what I actually have the ability to do. He's brilliant, and he needs people to appreciate that. And he's driven by that. He's also driven by, though, this pride that even though he's dying of cancer, he's going to be the one to provide for his family, and he's not going to accept help from anybody else. He's going to figure out a way to provide for them. No, I'm not taking your help. I'm going to do this myself. And so he's driven by both his insecurity and his pride at the same time. And these desires rule him. And so that what eventually results is if, if... uh, you've seen online, there's like the Breaking Bad periodic table of death. Uh, and, and, and he's ultimately responsible for the death of 247 people. And that all came from insecurity and pride. Now, if, if you've just started watching it and you're upset that I gave something away, it's called Breaking Bad, okay? So it, it, it's, it's not going to end well. It, it, has, it, it's just, it just goes badly the whole way. It's kind of like um, Frozen, where Elsa and Anna turn and they stab each other with ice picks at the end. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just, that doesn't happen. You can still go watch a movie. It's okay. Um, you may try to, to live life 
without reference to the God, but you can't live life without reference to a God. And whatever God you serve, whatever it is you pursue, whatever you build your identity on, that God will control you. That God will determine the very direction of your life. Uh, maybe for you, you're controlled by this fear of failure. And so you've got everything mapped out every day from, from 5 in the morning to the time you go to bed at night. And nobody better mess with my schedule. I've got no time for interruptions. I've got no time for Sabbath. Uh, I've, I've got to study. God may say I need to rest, but Walford says I have to study. And so I'm ruled by that instead of by God. Uh, maybe you're obsessed with, with how much you eat or how much you weigh. And that desire to control those things is actually controlling you. Uh, maybe your desire for your children to love you is so strong that it keeps you from disciplining them out of your fear that they won't love you. Maybe your fear of the uncomfortable and awkward is keeping you from actually building relationships with people who would care about you and love you. Maybe your desire for pleasure has led you to this secret life that nobody knows about, but you can't figure out how to get out of because it rules you and controls you. You can live life without, you can try to live out life without reference to the God, but you can't live life without reference to a God. Life without God, life with a God. What are the consequences of that? Well, we've seen a lot of them already, right? The, the, the consequences of Abimelech's attempt to live life without God, they affect everybody around him, uh, but at the end of the day, they affect him as well. It comes back to roost on him. Uh, as this woman drops a, a millstone on his head, crushes his skull, and he's still trying to stay in control here. Uh, he, he doesn't want to, to, for people to know that he was killed by a woman, and so he has his armor bearer running through with his sword, and Abimelech dies. At first, he might have thought, this is only, he might have think it's only going to affect other people, but at the end of the day, his desire for power and control destroys Abimelech as well. Y'all, we need to know that even if you're, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, your sin has consequences. My attempts and your attempts to live life without God, they have consequences. Not just for other people, but for you and for your children as well. It affects people. There's an incredible uh, video series that I just saw. It's just come out this, well, I just saw it this week. There are three videos, they're about 10 minutes each, uh, and the name of the series is Raised, uh, with a question mark on the end. Uh, and the videos tell the story of a couple named Ben and Jessica Roberts. Uh, ben and Jessica grew up in Christian homes, they grew up in the church. Uh, ben grew up in a church where, one of these churches where it was, he said it was an evangelical megachurch, and if you had hard questions, people wouldn't really answer your questions. They would just kind of dodge you and, and move on to other things. Uh, Jessica grew up in a church that was very wealthy, but she saw very little of the gospel actually being worked out in actual practice. And so as they grew up in these churches, 
they both began to wrestle with these hard questions about the faith. And the one that was really undoing them was the question of suffering. They couldn't really get their arms around suffering and God's existence and how that all uh, fit together. And like I said, they weren't getting any answers for their questions. And so eventually, they just, they just both, and they got married at some point, but eventually they just both walked away from the faith. And they said, look, we... We don't get it, and, and we're just going to do life without reference to God. But what happened was, it not that, was not that they went off into this kind of happy, partying, uh, carefree lifestyle. Jessica described it as a, as a slipping into the darkness as they walked away from God. Uh, they turned away from God, but in the place of God, here's what Ben said. He said, instead of worshiping God in the place of that, he put his affection for Jessica, you may walk away from the God, but you're going to have a God. And so in the place of God, he tried to put his affection for his wife. Then he said, whatever I feel for her, that's what I believe in. In other words, that's my God. Whatever I feel for her, that's what I believe in. But he said, beneath this feeling, there was this fear that she would die and leave him all alone. Or that he would die and leave her all alone. Or that love would just go away and then there wouldn't be anything left for him to believe in. And so the videos kind of trace his descent into uh, despair and depression. They began to drink a lot of alcohol. They began to get involved in psychedelic drugs. Uh, ben got suicidal and they were kind of this place of like, why even try? What does it even matter? And then Jessica got pregnant. And she said that, that knowing what the world was like in their mind, this depressing, godless place filled with suffering, they both agreed that this was no place to bring a kid. Why would you bring a child into a world like this with no God and no hope and nothing but meaningless suffering? And so they did what in their minds was the merciful thing, and they had an abortion. So we're actually, we're actually being merciful to this child by not bringing this child into the world, and they had an abortion. Uh, and she said it's a decision that they've regretted to this day. Well, <clears throat> they left wherever they were living. They, they couldn't handle the shame and the guilt, and this, they were depressed there. And so they decided to, to move out west. And they, they hook up with a bunch of hippies, uh, and they start smoking weed and living in a van out in the desert, okay? And they said they would just spend, like, weeks out in the desert. Uh, he said, you know, at least we're living an honest life. I don't believe in anything. We're just going to make the best of it. So they just got high and, and lived in the desert. Ben said the problem was that every morning when he got up and looked in the mirror, the same guy was still staring back at him. He was staring at him when he lived back east. He couldn't get away from himself. And so there would be these moments where he would try to clean himself up. He said when he did that, remember you're going to have an A God, he would turn away from the drugs and the alcohol and he would start compulsively shopping, buying cars, bought a house, uh, went to Europe, tried meditation, tried gambling. We said none of it was fixing what was really broken in his life. 
Jessica said that she was ashamed to search for God. She didn't expect grace. In fact, she expected punishment because of everything that they had done. She didn't expect grace. She expected punishment. The story we looked at this morning, punishment is how the story of Abimelech ends. He tried to live life without God, and it ends in punishment. In fact, the text tells us that God was actually judging Abimelech for what he has done. Look at what I didn't read in verse 56 real quick. Thus God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he committed against his father in killing his 70 brothers. And God also made all the evil of the men of Shechem return on their heads. And upon them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jerubbabel. Abimelech tried to live life without reference to God. But at the end of the day, you really can't live life without reference to God. To God. And so God orchestrates Abimelech's downfall. This is not just something that randomly happened, but God actually orchestrated and brought about judgment on, on Abimelech. And this was exactly what he deserved. God pronounced a just sentence of condemnation on Abimelech, and he was right to do that. He was righteous in doing that. He did the right thing. He acted in accordance with his justice. And he punished Abimelech for living life without reference to God. What about Ben and Jessica? They tried to live life without reference to God. Did her fear come true? How did that story end? She, she didn't expect grace. She only expected punishment. And to this day, they live with the consequences of aborting their child. But here's the rest of the story. Uh, on one of their trips to Europe, they, they went to Spain, and they're walking around looking at everything. And at some point, Ben says, is this really all there is to it? Isn't there anything else? And then he says, do you think maybe we should become parents? And he said that at that point, what he was really trying to do was he was still trying to find one more way to fill the void, the emptiness in his life. But that in doing this, God actually started them back on a journey to find him. It started them back on a journey to God because it was at this moment, as they were thinking about whether we should adopt a child, it's at this moment they actually started to pray again. They started to pray again. They started to live life like God was back in the picture. Now, they hadn't come home yet, but they're starting to live life again like God is in the picture. Eventually, they adopted a child from Thailand. Uh, and Jessica says that it was like God had tangibly given them a message of grace, that he loved us and had been pursuing us the entire time, even when we were running away from him. She started going to a church that met in a bar. Uh, and one Sunday they were seeing Father Abraham, which has you know, no theological meaning much at all. And, and, and they're just singing Father Abraham. And she said tears just started rolling down her face as they were singing that song because she realized that God had more in store for her than she had any idea of. 
and that God loved her more than she had any idea. Uh, eventually, Ben started going, and they tried to answer his hard questions. He said eventually he found the answer for those questions in Christ. But it wasn't this instant transformation. It was a bumpy transformation. And he said the last thing that he gave over to God was his depression. The last thing that he would surrender to God was his depression. And he said he had a hard time surrendering his depression because it had felt so much like a part of his life that he couldn't imagine himself without this part of him. But then one day when he was praying, he said, God, I'm just giving everything to you. And the reason he did that, he said, is because he says, I realize that surrendering it to God, that surrendering my depression to God wasn't going to eradicate who I was. It was going to renew who I was. Surrendering my depression to God is not going to eradicate, surrendering whatever is not going to eradicate who I am. It's going to renew who I am. God radically showed them grace and mercy, undeserved grace and mercy through a son, through a child who pointed them to God's son, Jesus Christ. If you're here today, then you're like me, and you deserve the same fate of Abimelech. You deserve the punishment that Abimelech got. I deserve an ending like the ending. I deserve to have a stone dropped on my head. That's what I deserve. But if you're here right now, then the message that God is offering to you is a message of grace. It's the message that we hear in the gospel. It's the message that we're going to see in this table. God is offering you today not what you deserve. And he would be right to give us what he deserves. But he is what we deserve. But instead, he is offering you mercy and grace and forgiveness in Jesus Christ. And the question is, will you stop trying to live life apart from God? And will you start building your identity on the forgiveness that's found in Jesus Christ? If you'll come to him, he won't eradicate who you are. He'll renew who you are because he loves you more than you could ever imagine. We pray for us. Father, we are certainly people who deserve justice as Abimelech received, and you would be right in giving us that. But you have graciously offered up your son. You offer him to us today and call us to come to him to repent of building our, our lives on things other than you, to repent and to come and to receive the free forgiveness and mercy that's found in him. God, would you help us to see Jesus and how lovely he is? Would you draw us away from our faults, God, and would you draw us to yourself? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.